Good morning. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Has anyone ever told you that you just needed to get some sleep and you'll feel better in the morning? Yeah, me too. Isn't that the exact same thing we do with our computers? Just turn them off and turn them back on again? Sometimes things just need reset, I guess. That's kind of how I see New Year's. It's like this arbitrary line we draw in the sands of time because we're humans and we do weird stuff like that. But it's just another day, really, right? But we humans need that one magical day that affords us the privilege of making resolutions and resetting our lives. So since you've probably been thinking about New Year's resolutions, I'm going to throw out a suggestion for you to consider. We're going to talk about forgiveness today. We're getting ready to open the book of Philemon, and the core contextual thrust is rooted in the personal relationship between a slave and his master. And with the ever-elevated level of wokeness in our society today, the church has been subjected to increasing accusations that it is and or has been complicit in racism. For the record, I'm not tackling that topic today. But... I do want to touch on it because I'm sensitive to the current environment we're living in, and I I understand the images and and the feelings that come to mind when we hear words like slavery. We can all see the effects of sin in the world around us. On, On that much, we should be able to agree. Any worldly system, assuming it involves people, will be fallen and corrupt, It's important for us to remember that. It isn't the systems that are fallen and corrupt and in need of a savior. No. It's the people inside of them. We, the people, need redemption. We, the people, need transformation. When Paul said our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, he was reminding the church that we, the people, aren't even citizens of this world, let alone this country, Therefore, our primary mission as Christians isn't to overthrow the government. We aren't called to respond to this fallen world in that way. We are called to live quiet lives, minding our own affairs, loving God, and loving our neighbors. Jesus said, a new commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you also must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another. But it is curious. In Philemon, we're going to see Paul make this seemingly mild appeal to this slave owner. Why Why does Paul make such a soft appeal concerning such an atrocious institution? Because doing so could have compromised the gospel. Now, why do I say that? Because societal reformation without spiritual transformation only produces morality. And unfortunately, morality doesn't in and of itself put us right with God. Now, does it? So, clearly, there's this very strange tension here as far as the church is concerned. On on the one hand, we are opposed to sin, including but not limited to slavery. It's one of the most tragic, awful, and disgusting institutions ever conceived of. And no one is pushing back against that. Not me, not you, and certainly not Paul. Now, on the other hand, even if humanity proved successful in the eradication of racism and slavery, would that by default produce a redeemed people? Well, no, of course not. We would still be sinners in need of a savior. The point is, slavery is a symptom, not the problem. Sin is the problem. Sin. It has always been the problem. It's in my heart. It's in your heart. It was in Philemon's heart. It was in Onesimus' heart. It was even in Paul's heart. And he was a pretty spiritual dude. Mike, Mike read, you know, when Paul said, in terms of sinners, I'm the foremost. Put me at the top of the list. So if all of humanity is infected by sin due to the fall, even our biblical heroes, 
but we aren't supposed to protest or rebel or cancel, then what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to act as Christians standing in the middle of this dumpster fire? <laughs> if protesting doesn't fix it, if, if canceling doesn't fix it, will, will replacing hierarchy with equality fix it? No, that won't fix it either. The way we fix it is by following the example Paul gave us in his letter to Philemon. By appealing to the love of Christ. Jesus is the only viable, eternal solution to our sin problem. And the church will always be best served by never compromising on that fundamental truth. All right, so up until now, all, all I've essentially done is tried to clearly delineate the distinction between the practical and the spiritual. Slavery is a practical implication of sin that we can see and point to in the world, and it turns our stomachs as much as it does God's. Nonetheless, our mission is spiritual because we know that the sin each of us carries around in our own hearts is what drives these evil institutions. We are called to serve those around us by spreading the good news of the gospel so that we can live in peace with God and with each other. Now, that doesn't mean that we aren't at all concerned with the, the practical needs of our neighbor. Of course we are. It just means that eradicating slavery doesn't save anyone eternally. Okay, so we, we just took a little time to, to highlight the spiritual aspect of, of slavery, but we've still got a little bit more work to do. Let's talk for a second about the practical aspect of slavery, because we need to make some distinctions here as well. Slavery in first century Rome wasn't the same thing as the slavery we're used to hearing about today. More often than not, when we hear someone speaking about slavery today, it seems to almost exclusively be contextualized in early American history. When we think about that kind of slavery, we think about white people owning and oppressing black people. Because of this, we have conditioned ourselves to think of slavery as being cultural, where African and European slave traders were capturing innocent Africans and then selling them like they were commodities. Here's the point to, here's the thing to keep in mind, though. Paul wrote his his letter to Philemon from Rome, circa A.D. 60 to 63. And at this point, Rome had been conquering other territories for nearly 300 years. So New Testament slavery wasn't cultural like the slavery of early American history. Rome did not care what color you were. Rome saw the world as only having two kinds of people in it, conquered or yet to be conquered. Consequently, most slaves in the Roman Empire were the spoils, or by this time, the offspring of spoils, from war and all kinds of people with all kinds of skin colors from all kinds of places had been conquered by the Roman military and became slaves. And since this had been going on for so long, Rome had learned a few things about running an empire with this many slaves. Mainly that the more contended they were, the better they worked and functioned as an integral part of society. Rome had learned that if they treated their conquered subjects like people and at least somewhat protected their rights as human beings, albeit very limited in scope, they were much less likely to face an insurrection. Now, my suspicion isn't that Rome had come to operate this way because they were truly concerned about protecting the dignity of their conquered subjects and slaves. No, I, I think that over time they had learned the most pragmatic way to keep maybe the largest segment of their population in order and under control was to treat them like people. I think their motivation was entirely secular. They weren't so much interested in trying to protect individuals as they were focused on maintaining their power by controlling society. So by A.D. 60... Slaves could marry, accumulate wealth, and even purchase their own freedom. Slaves could be doctors, attorneys, accountants, etc. They were, there, there really weren't many industries or sectors of the empire's economy that slaves were excluded from. 
In fact, you could, you could maybe argue they oversaw most of them. Now, none of this means that masters didn't still hold the power of, of life and death over their slaves. They absolutely did. And there were certainly wicked slave owners in Rome that took that power and wielded it mercilessly, ruling over their subjects with an iron fist. But by and large, though, that wasn't really the cultural norm. Now, don't get me wrong here. I'm, I'm not trying to whitewash slavery as presented in the New Testament. No amount of respect or kindness justifies owning another human being, period. All I'm saying is we can't let that mutually agreed upon fact blind us to the realities of slavery in first century Rome. It would not have been the least bit uncommon for a slave to have a better standard of living than a free person. So much so that, in many cases, individuals willingly sold themselves into slavery because of debt. These were called bond servants. Paul actually refers to Onesimus as a bond servant in verse 16, if we can ever actually get to the text. In fact, let's just do that right now. Can we, can we pull up that map? Um, if you spent any time at all in, in Dave Brown's class, I am no Dave Brown, but there's a map. Okay, so it's circa A.D. 60 to 63, and, and Paul is in prison in Rome for spreading the gospel. He's appealed to his Roman citizenship, and he's awaiting trial. We kind of get the sense that he isn't thinking his charges are going to stick, and it doesn't seem like he's expecting to be there much longer. In any event, he's contained, but not like bound to a post in chains contained, more like house arrest contained. He could have visitors and things. So he was a prisoner of Rome, but for sure, his circumstances could have been worse. Now, while he's in prison, he gets a visit from this guy, Epaphras, who came all the way from Colossae to see Paul. And that's a hike. Something had to be, you know, something was bugging him, because I, I sometimes will lay down in the bed and realize the remote is over on the table, and I'm not going to get it. <laughs> We're just going to read a book. But this isn't the first time these guys have have crossed paths. Paul led Epaphras to the Lord when he had his three-year stint in Ephesus. Anyhow, this this guy Epaphras gets saved in Ephesus and then apparently goes to plant the Colossian church. Now, at this point, Epaphras has gotten pretty worried about some heretical teachings that are starting to pop up in the church. In fact, he's so bothered that he, he decides to take that journey to Rome, so he could get some counsel from his spiritual papa, the Apostle Paul. But while he's there, Epaphras gets locked up too. In any event, he's able to tip off Paul, and that at least in part prompts Paul to write his letter to the Ephesians and the Colossians, which are considered to be two of his four um, letters that we group together as the prison epistles. In fact, let's, let's pause for a commercial break. Today's message is brought to you by BP Academy. Did you know Philippians was also considered a prison epistle, but it it falls outside of the scope of our study today. So if you're interested in diving deeper on, on stuff like that, make sure you're signed up for the BP Academy New Testament survey class that starts next week. All right, so back to our setup. In addition to the others, the book of Philemon is also considered a prison epistle because Paul writes it at the same time. But this letter is different. This is a personal note to a friend. It's the only letter of its kind in the Bible. Some people call it a New Testament postcard. Essentially what we have here is a front row seat to Paul's personal discipleship of Philemon, who also came to Christ through Paul's ministry in Ephesus. And just like Epaphras, Philemon was in Colossae. Now, we get the sense from Paul in this letter to Philemon that Philemon may have been fairly well off financially and seemed to be a good man despite having owned at least one slave, Onesimus. Now, Onesimus was a bondservant in Philemon's household. Onesimus worked for Philemon, so there was an economic relationship but no spiritual fellowship because Philemon wasn't a believer. Here's where things start to get interesting. Apparently, around the same time that all this stuff with, with, is unfolding with Epaphras, Onesimus decides he's going to maybe steal a little money from Philemon and make a break for it. And due to circumstances, we don't, we don't really 
understand or have insight to, Onesimus finds himself in Rome Rome where he too ultimately lands in Paul's company and winds up getting saved by Paul, just like Epaphras and Philemon had. Though, of course, their relationship grows, Paul's affection for Onesimus continues to grow, but there's trouble a-brewing. Onesimus is free in Christ, but not in Rome. What to do? So Paul pins this personal letter to his friend Philemon concerning Onesimus and sends Onesimus back to Colossae under the care of Tychicus to protect to, to protect to help protect him from slave catchers. With them, he sends the letter to Philemon, the Colossians, and most likely the letter to the Ephesians as well. This is AD 60. So obviously Philemon wasn't able to just pull up Facebook and get a, you know, get a status update on Onesimus. So when Tychicus and Onesimus show up on Philemon's doorstep, he must have been somewhat surprised. And Onesimus was probably terrified. Remember, Philemon would have been within his legal rights to execute Onesimus right there on the spot. Despite all of that, with a trembling hand, Onesimus hands the letter over to Philemon. All right, stand with me. And turn with me to the book of Philemon, Philemon, which should be on page 1000 in your pew Bible. Let's read God's word together. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though, I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required. Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner, also for Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. To say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me. For I am hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Thus saith the Lord. You may be seated. Okay, so let's comb back through this text together, starting with the, the greeting in, in verses 1 through 7. Sorry, the computer bugged out. I need to turn it off and turn it back on again. Okay, and, and, and since I don't have the, the luxury of kind of relaxing this message over, over a couple of Sundays, I'm just going to go ahead and, and cut to the chase for us here and say that even though the word forgiveness never appears in this lesson or this letter, here's your spoiler alert. That's what it's about. It's about forgiveness. And, you know, it's, it's amazing to me 
that the world teaches us to forgive ourselves, but not others. When we're wronged, the world is right there in our ear or on our screen, encouraging us to be true to ourselves, to embrace our truth. We're led to believe that our our own personal narrative trumps reality. The world tells us, hold on as tight as we can to to white-knuckle our truth, because clinging to our autonomy at all costs is far more valuable than peace and unity with our neighbors. Jesus said, honor your father and mother. But the world tells you to ghost them or unfriend them if they don't share your views on vaccinations or masks. Jesus said to love your neighbor as yourself. But the world tells you to drag them or cancel them if they don't support your candidate or agree with you entirely on exactly which lives matter. Paul had maybe never heard of dragging someone on the internet, but this is the kind of scheming he had in mind when he wrote 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, that anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs or schemes, depending on your translation. You can't possibly love your neighbor as yourself when you're so quick to forgive yourself but not your neighbor. That's hypocrisy, not love. Love fulfills the law. Unforgiveness violates it. Proverbs 19.11 says, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. There's no fuller manifestation of God's glory. There's no better expression of God's love. God is never more like himself than when he forgives us. And we are never more like him when we forgive each other. When we forgive each other, we express that same love and we manifest that same glory. But I digress. Let's get back to the text. Okay, so Philemon has just opened the letter, and the first word he reads is Paul. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Paul. If I'm Philemon, this letter has got my attention already. I I probably even forgot that Onesimus is, is, is standing there. It's to me from Paul. The Paul. You know, Philemon's just entered a pretty exclusive club. I mean, he probably doesn't know it, but, but who else gets personal letters from Paul? I mean, Timothy and Titus? That's about it. So next he says he's a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Now, why does he word it like that? In both Colossians and Ephesians, those other two letters that Tychicus carried back, Paul introduces himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus. But here he starts by saying he's a prisoner of Christ. He could have said, it's me, Paul, an apostle of Jesus and a prisoner of Rome. But he doesn't. Why? Because apostles have authority, but prisoners do not. Paul seeking to influence Philemon by appealing to the Holy Spirit that resides in his heart. He's setting the tone right out of the gate that he's not there to instruct or command Philemon to do anything beyond what Philemon already knows to be true in his own heart. Paul is a master influencer. Not one that gets you to buy stuff on on Instagram, but one that plants churches and makes disciples. 
Paul knows he can catch more flies with honey. He doesn't need to boss Philemon around because he knows Philemon loves the Lord and loves the saints. That's what he means when he says, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of the love Because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. That word sharing there in verse 6 is usually translated as fellowship. But sharing might actually be a better translation in this instance it's more than fellowship it's it's the belonging to one another through faith faith in Christ that Paul is really getting at the heart of what he's saying is not only does Onesimus belong to Philemon but now Philemon belongs to Onesimus and that word effective actually means powerful how powerful How big of a testimony would it be for the Colossian church if Philemon and Onesimus were to live out Galatians 3.28 as an object lesson right there in the midst of the local body? There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Remember, we're hard-pressed to bring more glory to God, to be more Christ-like, than, when we, than we are when we forgive one another. Loving one another is refreshing, as Paul says in verse 7. All right, picking up in verses 8 and 9. Accordingly, though, I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required. Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. Accordingly, or therefore, depending on your translation, is the bridge between that really affectionate greeting and this enormously tall ask that Paul's getting ready to hit Philemon with. In other words, Paul is saying, therefore, after having reminded you of your own spiritual maturity, I have a request I'd like to ask of you. And while I have the authority to dictate my expectations of you, Given your spiritual maturity, there's no need for me to do so. Rather, I'm simply appealing to you as a brother. But remember, Paul knows that in Roman culture, this is no small thing. In fact, from a secular standpoint, it's really none of Paul's business what Philemon chooses to do with Onesimus. He could put him out of his household, firing, beating, killing Branding with an F on his forehead for fugitive. All viable options as far as Roman law is concerned, and Onesimus knows all of this. Still, he stands there humbly before Philemon. And, and you know what? I don't, I don't really care how spiritually mature Philemon was. I can't imagine that he didn't feel some kind of way about Onesimus as he stood there looking back at him. And as I, was, as I was thinking about this aspect of the, of the drama playing out, a, a verse came to mind. Matthew 26, 41, when Jesus says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Paul knows Philemon is a mature believer, faithful in most every way, but he also knows he's a man. Susceptible in almost every way. So what does Paul do? He intercedes. Paul's in prison. He can't be there to mediate for these two guys. He knows Philemon is going to be standing there with Onesimus, and there won't be anything except air and opportunity between these two guys. So Paul essentially tells Philemon, look at me. Don't look at Onesimus. Look at me. Onesimus isn't making this request, I am, Paul, the aged. And when he said that, he didn't mean, I'm older than you, so you need to respect your elders. He meant, I've packed more suffering for the gospel into my life than you have into yours. 
And just to emphasize my point, I'm going to rattle my chains right now and remind you I'm in prison for the gospel even as you read this. Verse 10 through 16. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. Especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. All right, so there's a a ton of insight here in this section with respect to the spirit of Paul's appeal. But I'm I'm running down the clock, and and there's a few more things I want to be sure I have the opportunity to mention. So I'm going to be brief here, but I still want to pull on a couple of threads real quick. The first is just a wink at the brilliance of Paul's wordplay. The the name Onesimus means profitable or or useful. It was was somewhat of a a common name for slaves, but when Paul says Onesimus was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me, he's actually saying useful was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. Paul's saying, I understand he ran away. But it may have been for the best because you're not getting back the same dude that you lost. You're getting back a new man. He's been redeemed. He's been transformed. He's a new creature. He's your brother now, even though he may still be your bondservant. Paul was looking toward eternity when he said, for this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. And that that word bondservant we see there twice in verse 16, that's the other thread I want to pull on. We touched on this word earlier, but I want us to to drill down on it a little bit more. When you hear bondservant, a good modern-day equivalent might be an employee or even a soldier. The nuance and the meaning of this word here isn't just that Onesimus may have been treated fairly, and even compensated financially for his work, but that for all we know, he could have willfully applied or enlisted for the job. Sometimes bond servants were so content with their circumstances in life that they might even purchase their freedom, but choose to keep their job working for their masters due to the standard of living it afforded them. Still, I think the military is an even better illustration here for the point I'm wanting to make. It's better than the employer-employee illustration because in the military, we can more clearly see power being distributed by rank. Everyone enlisted in the United States military today is financially compensated for, for their work in some way, but the military does a little better job at making sure you know where your autonomy stops. So a soldier, they might have their freedom, but how free are they actually? Soldiers today aren't forced to join the military. They aren't conquered slaves, obligated to fight against their will. They are free and there because they chose to be. But again, how free are they? You've heard of being AWOL, right? Absent without official leave. It's basically deserting your post with no intention of returning. And it wasn't very long ago in in some militaries that it was still legal for a superior to shoot a deserter on sight. And it might still be in some places. During the First World War, France executed over 600 of her own troops for desertion. Stalin's rumored to have killed over 100,000 of his own troops during the Second World War. And if you wanted a more recent example, do you remember Sergeant Bird, uh, what was his name? Sergeant Bo Bergdahl? They didn't shoot him on sight, but he was facing life in prison for deserting his post. Now, none of that is, is, is really the point or, or that important. All I'm, all I'm trying to do is raise your sensitivity to the stakes for Onesimus. Deserting your master was serious business. And Rome 
and its culture wasn't known for playing around. Onesimus was risking everything by going back to Philemon, and there wasn't much he stood to gain except maybe a a clear conscience before the Lord. And there's no question in my mind that Onesimus' decision to go back was a sign of true obedience. The kind of obedience that could only come from a higher authority. It's the kind of thing that could only come as a response in faith. We know what's going on in Onesimus' heart because of what we see him doing. We know he's repentant because he's returned himself to Philemon willfully. He did the right thing. Still, the offense stands. So if anyone has ever needed a savior to intercede for them, Onesimus does right now in this moment. Which is exactly why this next section of the letter is so beautiful. Repentance is where Onesimus needed to start. But reconciliation can occur without the presence of both repentance and forgiveness. So forgiveness is where Philemon needed to start if these two men were ever to be reconciled. But sometimes for restoration to be accomplished, restitution needs to be paid. And Paul was no dummy when it came to God's spiritual economy. See, God doesn't sweep sin under the rug. This is why I'm not particularly fond of the phrase, forgive and forget. Now, I know, I know, I know very well the Bible teaches us that God does not remember our sins. I understand, I get it, trust me. But I'm not sure the average guy off the street does. When God says he doesn't remember our sins, what he means is he doesn't hold them to our account. He doesn't forgive and forget. He forgives and accounts. His books are tight. Every penny, or should we say every offense has been accounted for, he paid for it. He paid for it with his own life. We aren't free in Christ because God cooked the books or looks the other way. No. We're free in Christ because when God looks at us, he sees Christ. And that's exactly what's going on here. Just like in the Old Testament sacrificial system when the the Shekinah glory would manifest itself over the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies and look down on the law that was broken in the hearts of his people as represented by the tablets in the Ark, his sight would stop at the shed blood of a perfect, innocent, substitutionary sacrifice that the high priest had sprinkled on the lid of the ark to make atonement. There's something similar going on here. Paul is interceding for Onesimus like the high priest in Old Testament times or or like Jesus did once and for all in the New Testament. And Paul is very aware of the cost associated with his request, and he isn't asking Philemon to discount it. What does he say? Starting in verse 17. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. To say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. Are you starting to see it? Can you see how Paul looks like Jesus to Onesimus? And he's inviting Philemon to do the same. He's telling Philemon, this is it, man. This is what it's all about. For even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Paul's telling Philemon, don't miss this opportunity, brother. People are watching. This is the essence of the Christian life, and the book of Philemon is one of the most beautiful human examples of substitutionary atonement that I've ever seen. But but forget about Philemon and Onesimus for a second. I want you to see something bigger. In your mind's eye, I want you to picture an unbelieving master. 
that has jurisdiction over a slave that happens to be a believer. If through that slave's faithfulness and obedience, that master comes to Christ, effectively what's happened is the master has become the sheep and the slave has become the shepherd. Can you see what we're, we're getting at here? The gospel disrupts the natural order of this fallen world. And we don't need to organize or protest anything. All we need to do is be obedient to the Spirit, as Paul points out in verse 21. So ask yourself, when it comes to forgiveness, how obedient have you been? If your score is less than perfect, I assure you, you're not alone. You're human, and so was Philemon, which is exactly why we see Paul shore this whole thing up with a little accountability. They were talking about that earlier. Starting in verse 22, he says, At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas and Luke, my fellow workers, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. I love that phrase, at the same time. It, it communicates a tension between truths. All of the things Paul has already said and all the reasons he has said them stand. But at the same time, prepare a guest room for me. How's that for some gentle accountability? I trust you to do the right thing. But at the same time, I'll be checking in on you. And just in case I don't make it for some reason, Epaphras, your pastor, yeah, he knows about all of this too. So does Mark and Luke. Remember, people are watching. But no big deal, because I know that you will do even more than I say. All right, so with respect to time, that's it. That's where we'll wrap up our study of Philemon this morning. Of course, there's, there's always more cool stuff to, to look at, but that's where we're going to wrap it up. And with these last few minutes, I want to figure out what to do with all of this. How do we apply this, right? That's always the big question. They say knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit, but wisdom is knowing not to put it in a fruit salad. So what will we choose to do with what we know? Well, I want to break my remarks into two categories, one for believers and the other for non-believers, because I don't want there to be any confusion on who I'm talking to. So let's start with the believers. You're the more mature ones. When Onesimus decided to go back, do you think he expected to be forgiven? I don't. The reason I don't is because I don't see a ton of contrast between Onesimus and the prodigal son, at least not with respect to their spiritual posture. Luke 15, 19 says, and this is the prodigal son speaking, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. The prodigal son didn't expect to be forgiven. He was just hoping to be tolerated. Maybe you've done something that you don't expect to be forgiven for. Maybe someone has done something to you and, and they don't deserve to be forgiven for it. Maybe you would be well within your rights to hold your grudge. After all, the prodigal son's father would have been justified in disowning him. Would he not have? And what about Philemon? Would he not have been within his rights to punish Onesimus? Of course he would have. So you can withhold the giving or receiving of forgiveness if you want to. And maybe you're even right to do so, at least by the world's standard. But if you're a believer, the world standard shouldn't be your index or benchmark. And maybe, just maybe, you should flirt with the idea of getting over yourself. The essence of the Christian life isn't about you or your rights. And if you refuse to give or receive forgiveness, you might protect your ego, but no one is benefiting or growing spiritually. 
not you, not them, and not anyone else that might be watching from the sidelines. And that is the great spiritual tragedy of an unforgiving heart. Jesus said, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, just in case anybody's freaking out out there, Jesus is not saying that if you fail to forgive someone, you're going to hell. No. Think back to John's gospel when Jesus told Peter he didn't need a bath. He said, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean. The idea there is that we need to keep short accounts with God and short accounts with each other for the sake of our own sanctification and the building up of the body in love. If you belong to Christ, the idea that you can forfeit God's blessing and open yourself up to his discipline should scare you to death. And stop you dead in your tracks, especially if you're on your way to the altar. Remember that little verse in Matthew, don't you? So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. If you keep coming in here, this year, every single Sunday, week after week, and there's this unresolved, unchecked area in your life, and you haven't asked for or given forgiveness to someone, shame on you. Forgiveness might feel like work, but we shouldn't see it as a burden. It should be our privilege to do God's work. Besides, it's not even really that hard. If each party will just put a brick on the table, the Holy Spirit will provide the mortar. If we we rely just on our flesh, we won't always feel that that conviction. But, But if the Spirit prompts us, and you know when he is, it's our duty as his bondservants and soldiers to act on that conviction. God did not build the ark for Noah. He showed Noah how it was to be built. Likewise, God doesn't forgive your neighbor for you. But he uses the book of Philemon to give us an example of how to do it. Amen? Oh, and whatever you do, be sure not to concern yourself with how you might be received or treated. Remember Romans 12, 8. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Okay. Non-believers, it's your turn. Justin was hitting on this earlier. You know, I don't, I don't know your situation, but you do. Maybe you've been going to church your whole life. You know all the churchy words and how to act just so, so that no one catches on that you don't actually know Jesus. Maybe you've been striving to keep up appearances and trying to hold it all together on the outside, and it's killing you. Maybe you're holding on to your sin or your pride or your rights or whatever it is for you that's keeping you from seeking forgiveness, but, but privately, you're dying on the inside and you know it. Trust me when I tell you that's not the way God designed it. That isn't what he wants for you. Freedom is available. The cost is enormous. You're right about that. But you don't need to worry Because Jesus has already paid it. If you're sitting there thinking, you don't need Jesus, but yeah, maybe you could do a better job at at forgiving some of the people or, or overlooking some of the offenses God has put in your path. If that's your heart attitude, I'm here to tell you, in love, you're mistaken. Picture an ear doctor for a moment. Pretend this doctor understands everything there is to know about hearing. She understands everything there is to know about how sound waves are created and how all the bones and muscles and cartilage and tendons and membranes work together in our ear for us to hear those sounds. She understands all of that. But pretend she's deaf. 
Could this doctor learn anything new about hearing if she was given her hearing? Of course she could. Understanding hearing isn't the same thing as knowing and experiencing what it's like to hear. So if you're sitting there thinking in your heart that you understand forgiveness, but you don't know Jesus, I would suggest to you that you're like the deaf doctor. And I'd like, you, I'd like to invite you to pray right where you sit. Acknowledge your sin and tell God you see it the same way he does and that you know you're helpless to clean it up and you need his help. You need his mercy. You need his grace to have your heart restored and your soul reconciled back to God. If you believe that, if you do that, God will meet you right where you are. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I promise you. Jesus said, my my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Don't carry all of your baggage around for another year. Turn to him. Repent and seek forgiveness so that you can go and do likewise for others. Because that's what it's all about. That Christians are to forgive each other as God has forgiven them. That's the book of Philemon. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are so eternally grateful for what you have done for us. Lord, and we just ask that you stir the hearts of those that that don't know you and, and draw them closer to yourself. Lord, point out any any of the men in this church that they can go and, and talk to. And for those of us that, that do know you, Lord, we just, we just ask that you stir us up, compel us in your love to go and forgive so that we can manifest your glory. We love you so much. We ask all these things in your son's name, Jesus. Amen.